Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back in the hosting seat with a new episode with special guest Michael Reardon, founder and CEO of Happy Valley Ventures, a vertically integrated cannabis company serving adult use and medical customers in Massachusetts. In this episode, Chris connects with Michael to discuss how Happy Valley has grown since 2015 when it was an original client of Chris's consulting firm, Forefront Advisors, the complicated nature of the Massachusetts market, Happy Valley's unique approach to gaining market share in a crowded space, and what the future holds for his cannabis business. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Michael Reardon, founder and CEO of Happy Valley Ventures. All right. Well, hey, Michael, it's, uh, it is really awesome to be here with you. Um, you and I go way back in this industry, right? Back to when you were you were first a client at my original consulting firm, Forefront Advisors, and you and your team were considering how to get into the industry. So I just want to start out by first off saying congratulations on how far you've come. You know, you, you've come a really long way from that first meeting of ours back in, in 2015. And it's, it's really great to see what you've accomplished with Happy Valley and excited for you to be able to tell your story about it today. Um, so, you know, but before we do that, let's, you know, let's go even a little bit further back. You, you came to this industry with a pretty unique background, mostly in the hotel and real estate industry. So uh, let's hear a little bit about your background and how you and, and your business partner, Eddie Louth, came to start thinking about this and, and how you came into the cannabis industry. Sure, Chris. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on today. And I'm looking forward to sharing the Happy Valley story. And it really began with Eddie. Eddie had a had an interest sparked, I think, from a, in 2014 at some point uh, from the medical marijuana coverage and just the adult use that was happening out in Colorado. And we were working together um, on a, pro- a resort project on the island of Eleuthera in the Bahamas. I have actually been, had been down there, and both of us have been down there since yeah, middle of yeah, 2004, so to speak, you know, almost on a full-time basis, Eddie working on a different resort project and then I working on another one. So we actually had, had known each other for many years before we actually started working together. Um, you know, so that relationship evolved into Eddie and I working on a resort project together. And, and during that time, we became very close. As you have witnessed when you've seen us in the same room together, you know, mentor, friend, you know, father figure, you know, we just, yeah, we have a 20 year age difference, you know? Uh, So we just became very close. And in that process, um, I had a real estate development background uh, prior to getting into the Bahamas, you know, obviously in the Bahamas, it was a resort project, but prior to even the resort development side, I actually was, you know, on the finance side. So my whole career has really been real estate, finance, development, or construction one way or the other. Um, but I had been down in the Bahamas now at this point when, uh, for, for almost a decade. And I had two kids, you know, that were in diapers. I had another kid from a, uh, my first marriage that was growing up. And the travel and, and just being remote in the Caribbean had, had worn out. And, and Eddie and I had started talking about what could we do together in the future. And he approached me about medical marijuana. And I really actually laughed at him. Um, Here's a guy whose home base in, in the United States was Charleston, South Carolina. I'd spent the previous, you know, 10 years, so to speak, you know, uh, primarily focusing in, in resort development. I just absolutely had no background at all in cannabis on a legacy level other than as a consumer. And I hadn't been a consumer for many, many, many years because I was traveling internationally. And the Bahamas is not Jamaica. It's not cannabis is not part of the culture down there like it is, you know, uh, in a neighboring island like Jamaica. And so it just wasn't part of my life cannabis in any way shape or form um so we we had to be so he i really declined any interest initially chris um and 
it must have been maybe six or seven months later, Eddie approached me again because he had gone actually gone out to Colorado. And I think he went through medicine man facility, um, if I remember correctly. And he kept pursuing it because he was aware of legislation going through the, the house in Pennsylvania and that medical marijuana had an opportunity of actually uh, getting passed. And it was around that same time that just the travel and I know you can appreciate traveling a lot, Chris, and having a family. It <laughs> yeah, just yeah. had run its course. And it was time to figure out if I could get myself into another industry and, and career path. So I jumped on it. And you might remember how we first met. It was an introduction from Matthew Kind of the Canna Insider. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Was, so Matt and I had a, had a friendship that dated prior to the industry. And so I reached out to Matt and I said, hey, listen, I'm getting ready to pursue yeah, potentially pursue whether or not medical marijuana, you know, is an opportunity that uh, a partnership I'm looking at forming may want to pursue. And, and if we were to pursue it, how do you go about pursuing it? And can you help me, Matt? And so, you know, he at that time, I think it had his podcast going for maybe six months or so, Chris, and he had met you and he had met others in the industry. And so that is the first step that we took. You know, I, I ended up networking met you, I met others, I met others through you. Uh, and we started coming up with trying to figure out, you know, a, a financial model that would be successful and how that model is now extinct. <laughs> I might add you. Um, but we, 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 we came up with a, a game plan as that, you know, if we were to do this, how would we go about trying to pursue it? And one of the things that, that I heard from everyone, including yourself, Chris, is that, a, you know, it met in a medical marijuana market, you needed to, you know, be in a limited license market. And then you had the risk reward scenario of applying for an application and, and whether or not you actually get scored well enough to get that license. And so we went through that whole process. And Chris, you know, we were pursuing Pennsylvania. We were always going to go to Pennsylvania. We wanted to apply in Pennsylvania for medical marijuana. And then we found out about Massachusetts. And the medical marijuana program there. And I think Baker in the summer of 2015 lifted the residency requirement. And, and that interests me on, uh, personally uh, for the reason that my, my first job out of college was in the North Shore of Massachusetts, uh, Boston and Massachusetts. So I had lived in Massachusetts. I had friendships and, and a network that still was there. And we also caught wind that there was potentially going to be a ballot initiative for adult use in Massachusetts. Well, I think I, I think I think I helped you with a bit with the uh, inside uh, some inside track on that. I was uh, I was one of the authors of that initiative. <laughs> yeah, so you 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 sparked our interest, and I, I'm Ohio boy. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, so you know going to Pennsylvania really wasn't that interesting to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Massachusetts, uh, you know, was interesting. I. I had been separated, you know, for a long time by living in Charleston, South Carolina, and also in the Caribbean from being near any major city. So being close to Boston and all the things that come with that, I can, you know, it's a major amenity when, when you think about all the things you can do in that type of city. So I was really attracted to Massachusetts. And, and so was Eddie, especially when we understood that in Massachusetts, if we filed under the medical program, which at that time was the Department of Health, there wasn't a scoring application, so to speak, in terms of like you were going to do this and, and not get scored well enough to get a license. If you actually completed everything in the process under the DPH program, were able to get all the local approvals in place, you were going to get a license. So That's right. the risk reward scenario just was significantly better in, in Massachusetts compared to actually every other market we were looking at, which included Pennsylvania. Well, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is still medical today. Yes, right. Still medical only today. And we ended up never even applying there. As you know, we focused all our energies on the application in, in, in Massachusetts. And that's that's enough, you know, and, and and you're aware and we can probably expand on it. The local component to Massachusetts was actually something that that fit our skill set. You know, when it came into looking at a market, it it had a very heavy real estate play to it in terms of that you had to go through local zoning. You know, you had to get those local zoning approvals and you had to be able to identify which local zoning ordinances you could actually function with that. Right. And that that piece of the puzzle, as we looked at Massachusetts, 
fit our skills much better than trying to score against, you know, 700 other applicants. Right. So that's how we ended up in Massachusetts. Um, obviously it, it really worked out well with the adult use act passing in November, 2016. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, but, uh, I mean, you, you actually, you kind of answered my next question, which was how did you, you know, how did you pivot from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts? Um, uh, you know, I mean, even the, the name, if I recall correctly, right, the name Happy Valley Ventures comes from the Happy Valley area of Pennsylvania, right? Weren't you guys all, all Penn State alumni? <laughs> so we weren't all state college Penn, uh, Penn, Penn State alumni. There were, there were some, I mean, so the partnership started with with four of us, right? And Eddie was based out of State College, and another partner was based out of State College. And as real estate developers, we're, we're completely unoriginal in how we name any LLC. So it just happened to be Happy Valley Ventures LLC. Then we got you know you know serious about what was going to be the actual name of the company and the brand, right? And we ended up on Happy Valley, even though we aren't all connected to State College or even Central Pennsylvania. Or, and so on and so forth. But we all just liked the name, Chris. And when we started running it by creative and marketing agencies, nobody really frowned upon it. Uh, so we just we just went with the name. We and obviously, you know, that you could say that Happy Valley is a state of mind. There's a lot of different connotations. It just fits well with cannabis. Yeah, it does. It's it it does. You know, it's funny that a lot of times folks pick a, you know, a corporate name that's fairly innocuous. Um, and it sounds like that was kind of the, you know, the thinking initially. And then, you, you know, then you eventually pick a DBA that winds up being the actual, you know, name of your brand. But in this case, like it just, it worked. Um, and I think, you know, I think you've, I think you've got a good brand that we're going to get here in a minute as to how that it's worked. But before we get to the, 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 the fun stuff and the good stuff that's going on for you guys, um, I, I want to stick with Massachusetts a little bit here. Um, because, you know, a lot of folks, I think both of us included, uh, were really excited about the prospects of Massachusetts becoming the first and the largest adult use cannabis market east of the Mississippi, right? As you mentioned, that was one of the motivating factors of going to Mass instead of a place like Pennsylvania. But, you know, the way things played out was was a little more complicated, right? It took it took definitely took longer than most of us expected. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced in getting up and running in Massachusetts and being able to scale the business in, in the state uh, and the type of uh, type of uh, sort of business climate that wound up, uh, you know, that, that, that we wound up seeing there. You know, I tell people all the time, I, I, I'd like to write a book about all of this, but I don't want to relive it. Uh, and, and that's and that's really how the process has been in Massachusetts. Um, and and I can only speak to my experience in the cannabis industry in Mass. But you know, first off, we went through a regime change, right? Started out under the medical program with DPH. Then the Adult Use Act passes. Now we got a, a new entity being formed, which was the CCC. Um, and, and then you had two competing set of regulations, right? Chris, remember that at that time, that was really difficult to figure out how to navigate the medical program while running a parallel path on the adult use program. And so you had, so that was, that was a challenge. You have that. The second thing that really, as you know, hurts, I shouldn't say hurt, made it difficult in Massachusetts was the local approval process. Right. Host the host community agreements, right? The three, uh, the, th the three, the three most dread, the three most dreaded words for a Massachusetts cannabis operator. It, he got it. You had, you had the host community agreement, which is, you know, it's own separate animal running in parallel to the fact that you have to get through the local zoning process as well. And it's a lot easier to find a zoning ordinance in a community that that is willing to have a cannabis company now in 2022 than it was in 2015 and 2016. There were very few opportunities, uh, especially retail, Chris, as you can remember, they zoned us to the armpits of their of their communities, right? And, and they just didn't they didn't want us in a tr traditional commercial district. So finding that finding locations was very difficult and, and actually had a background in trying to find sites. So that that took months. Took you know, and obviously there many many communities that I presented in front of also standing by my side. You did as well. Um, in many communities, they they didn't want us. You know, they ran oh, us yeah. out of town. <laughs> we ended up you, you spend all that time and energy, and you get drawings produced. Next thing you know, you can't even, you know that, get, that you, there's no support in that community. You're not going to be able to get a local approval. But when we did get local approval, Chris, 
And we were successful in getting our, our first local zoning approval, which happened to be in the city of Gloucester. What happened? What did we find out of that existed for the first time in Massachusetts? We found out that there's the ability to appeal a, a zoning decision. And I had I was unaware <laughs> of that actual risk. I remember um, this, yeah. Yeah. So we so um for those that aren't familiar with the Commonwealth, there is a the ability for an abutter within, I think it's three or four or five hundred feet of your of your property or wherever your use is going to be located, they can appeal your zoning decision. There's an appeal period that lasts, I think it's 20 or 30 days after you have a zoning decision issue. And if anyone appeals you and there happened to be an abutter within that, that, that number of feet, you're delayed and you could be delayed for three years. If you, if you don't resolve that, that lawsuit and that appeal. And so of course we get our first approval in the city of Gloucester, of course, we get appealed by, by an abutter. And we have since been appealed on two other locations that we've gotten approved. Or, um, so that's another delay. And it's just another door number two that I didn't see coming. And so we had to work our way through that. We worked our way through a couple of, of these uh, appeals. Um, and so it just everything just ended up delaying. Everything took twice as long as we ever envisioned. Um, we can talk about the capital raising side here probably, you know, later on in this, in this podcast, but you know, the other thing is that everything took, you know, t- uh, required twice as much money. It felt like, right. So you had all these things going on, but more importantly, we were getting delayed. Our timeline is being pushed out. So it, so once you get through all that, Chris, and you get through all the, the, the approvals on a local level, and then you finally get your building with a certificate of occupancy, and you finally get operational, you then have to wait for the CCC to come back out and actually give you the authorization to proceed, right? So that all of that took so much longer than we ever anticipated. And then th- you're not even done yet, right? You haven't even grown a plant yet. You haven't, brought any, you haven't done anything yet to actually begin operating the business. And so it's really difficult on the front end. And and then once you get to the place where you're opening, you have to figure out how to become a vertically integrated cannabis company producing an entire menu of products uh, for customers to then purchase. And that's when all the consultants and everyone that had previous industry experience comes into play. And Chris, we had, you know, we, we have learned a tremendous amount by operating. But what we did, what we learned more than anything is the consultants can advise and they can give recommendations, but until you're actually running and operating the business the way that you want to run and operate your business, you're actually not getting exactly what you need from those consultants. And so, uh, and I know you can, you can appreciate this. Not, not all consultants in the industry are the same. Chris, and we had a mm-hmm. great relationship uh, and great experience with your company, but we didn't have that with everyone else. And, and so you got to deal with that, right? There's a lot of imposters in this industry, um, you know, and, and you got to filter through that. That's part of that's part of what you got to do. The other thing is, is you got to then figure out, you know, exactly which products you're going to focus in on, on bringing to market and, and in what order. So there's just so many different moving parts. I know that we spoke openly together many, many, many times about how difficult I, I saw this industry being, and I tremendously underestimated it. Um, you know, it's just, I mean, every step you turn around, this is just an industry that is completely unforgiving. You must never look away. Um, and I think more importantly, more than anything else that I've learned is that it's all, it's all about our people, Chris. You know, and I think I, I think I underestimated the amount of people it was going to take to pull off the vision of Happy Valley. Well, that's that's fair, and, and we're going to get we're gonna actually going to get into that now. It's a great segue, but I, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up, and I'm glad that our listeners get to hear this because. I think there's just such a misconception out there. And hey, maybe we're a little guilty of it too. We call this podcast the Green Rush, right? Um, but there's this misconception that you know, you go out and you get a cannabis license and this is like printing money. And I always try and tell folks like this business is hard. This industry is hard. We've got challenges that no other industry has to face, right? Tax issues, 280E issues, banking issues, 
know, local regulatory issues, uh, host community agreements, right? I mean, there's just, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and if, you know, if you're, if you're getting into, if someone's getting into this because they think this is a way to make a quick buck, like they're in the wrong business, right? You got to be in this. Yeah. yeah you got to be in this for the long haul. Yeah. And what the, one of the things that you, you don't hear in the industry from a lot of the people that you have advising you when you're first starting out is you, you don't hear, I don't know. <laughs> I've right. never, it's just, it's so important there, you know, like that was, I wish I had heard, I don't know a few more times from those that we were relying on instead of, you know, at that particular point and in, in where they were advising us from with where their skill sets were and where their in, industry knowledge base was, it, it just, they, I needed to hear, I don't know a few more times, you know, instead of, you know, they didn't really have that answer. Right. And so that's the other challenge, right? You, you're also getting advice from those that may not have created the skills or the experience that you thought that they had. Right. And so the, yeah, a lot well, of the and also, and, yeah. Yeah. And I was saying also it's, it's part of this is it's a, you know, this is such a state by state industry. And especially back then, I mean, we're talking 2015, 2016, right. And you're working with folks who have, you know, who have done this in Colorado, but you know, the regulations and the, you know, the, the, the local business climate and the, and the actual climate, right. Is different in Massachusetts. And so, you know, somebody who like may have had some of the better experience in the industry at that time, you know, they may have thought they knew, right? And they may have thought that 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 those skills were transferable to an entirely different state in a different part of the country. Um, but I think the reality, right? And I think your experience speaks to this. The reality is is quite different, um, and that this is you know this really is you know fifty unique state markets and not a cohesive federal industry yet or national industry yet. Um, and with that, you know, those skills and the things that worked in one state aren't necessarily always going to translate over to the other state. And I don't think back then a lot of folks really realized that. Well, the other thing is, Chris, like, for instance, Happy Valley is, you know, I, I wanted to create a cannabis company 100% dedicated to making the best possible cannabis products they can make, period. And then delivering it with great service and really you know, a modern retail experience with extremely well-trained, knowledgeable hosts to then help sell those the correct product to the consumer. That was that was who we are. That that is what we were founded on. But what ends up happening is you hire consultants that may not been the vision that they had in terms of product excellence and 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 have the share vision of excellence. And that's what I what I experienced. The model that that I had in terms of, let's just say, workflow and how uh, our floor plan was done on our, our cultivation facility. It didn't match um, what we were trying to achieve at Happy Valley, right? Um, because we didn't ask enough. We, we didn't, I didn't, I should say, fully understand how difficult it was going to be to achieve that product excellence and that you actually needed to state that out front. I don't want to cut any corners. I want to have the best possible facility to produce the best possible products. And so there's that that's also part of the learning curve, Chris, is that you might be getting advised by consultants that their definition of excellence isn't the same as yours. That's right. That's right. And and look at that stage of the business too. You don't always necessarily know what questions to ask. Um, and I didn't. You know, we didn't. You know, we didn't know what we didn't we didn't know what we didn't know at that point, right? That's right. That's right. But hey, look, in the end, like you wound up with a thriving business or your, your operational in Boston and Gloucester. Um, but, you know, I think and, and I'd like to talk a bit about how you've become successful here. And, you know, you, you you've taken a different approach to this than most in terms of you know, you've really focused on selling your own products. You focused on, as you mentioned, you know, excellence, high end products, selling your own products through and your own type of retail experience. Right. This isn't what a lot of dispensaries do where they feature mostly third party branded products in a you know, in, in a sort of a hub, you know, distribution type dispensary. Um, this is much more insular in that, you know, it's really focused on, you know, your own products, your own type of experience. Um, when you, when you, when you set out to do something like this, did you, did you consider this kind of approach to be a gamble? And, you know, how, how did you go about making it so successful? We, you know, we didn't consider it a gamble. You know, Eddie and I wanted uh, to to make great products and have a point of differentiation as related to how we go to market with those products and how we present our our stores 
and and how the brand looks uh, forward facing to the public. But I didn't. We didn't really realize uh, that we were a complete outlier with in, when it came to the retail experience. Um, so we, you know, we I we never had any. In, we never intended to be a cannabis department store or a 7-Eleven can, you know, convenience store for cannabis. You know, that was not who we were. We were building a brand for Happy Valley, a vertically integrated brand. We wanted to have a suite of products under that one brand, that one flag, and then and then produce the best products we could and then deliver them in, in a retail experience with extremely well-trained and knowledgeable staff selling our products because also didn't trust anyone else's products, not, not criticizing the industry, just wanted to focus in on building our brand and, and, and selling the products that we knew best. So we could control that message, control that training and, and get our, our staff behind our products. And so when people came into our stores, they were coming in for a happy Valley experience. Um, and so we, we, we have we have we since yeah we since learned that that's not the typical approach and and we've been fortunate to to be, to have pulled off that vision in a successful way. You know our store in Gloucester's um, been open for more than two years now. We're doing over six hundred people a day and averaging over one point one million a month. And we have built our our second location in East Boston. It's been open for more than a year now, and we got that store up to five hundred and fifty transactions a day and over a million dollars a month in revenue and all of our revenue from those two stores more than 2.1 million a month is 99% happy Valley products. We have some accessories that we sell that are third parties and we sell yeah, a, a beverage from a, from a, another company in, in the Massachusetts market because we're not doing beverages right now. And it, and it fills uh, it fills a void in our menu and, and they've been a good um, client of ours and a relationship of ours for, for many years. But, but it has worked out. And I think at the end of the day, you know, those customers have who've been coming every single day for many years now, they're, they understand what the Happy Valley brand is and what the experience is. And, and we're building that brand loyalty. And, and that's who we are. And, and so that's we just that's what we've always been. It's always been our focus to, to focus on ourselves. I, I, I'll be honest with you at the very top of the hierarchy here. It, Happy Valley, I spend all our time on our team, our products, and I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the competition. Uh, very myopic on our approach. What can I do to put our team in the best position to be successful? Do they have all the tools and equipment and everything they need to produce what I want, which is great products? It's fantastic. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about those products. Um, you know what what are what are some of your more successful branded products and um, and 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 with that, as you talk about you know what your products are and why you think they're successful, um, who or what do you credit with the company becoming the kind of product innovator that it has become in in the state of Massachusetts? For us, and nothing has changed from 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 the initial concept. Um, the primary focus is, is the garden and the flower genetic selection. And as a, as a, as a, as a vertical, how do we produce a, a suite of, of products, you know, in the flower category from jarred flower to pre-rolls, um, that touches a lot of different flavors, uh, a lot of different genetic lineages. Uh, and are we able to grow all of those different varieties, uh, at a commercial scale? Um, and then, and then have a, a proper pure finish on time, deliver a high quality product. Um, but it always gets, it, it all starts with the flower for us, Chris. Um, it, you know, it, I think the, the learning curve about how to grow commercially at scale is, is one of the most difficult things that anyone, especially a vertical will go through in this industry. And it, it remains the primary focus of everything that we do at Happy Valley. It's all about the flower for us. We really, really, really want to produce high quality cannabis at scale and to, and to provide a rotating selection of, of cultivars on our menu for our customers, right? And to find that balancing act and the timing of, and, 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 to, and to integrate in phenol honey, okay, in order to achieve this type of flower. 
And so that, so, you know, I'm, I'm you know, obviously for us, uh, we have a, a, a genetic by the name of super lemon haze. I mean, it's a, it's a common genetic that people have heard of in the industry. We ended up uh, running out of, you know, a bunch of seeds and caught a perfect pheno of it. And, and that's one of the beautiful things of this industry. You can get lucky every now and, then. and we got lucky, you know, we caught this one genetic Chris and, and super lemon haze, I, I think uh, might be the number one selling uh, genetic of flower in, in the Commonwealth. I don't have the Amazing. data ability to figure that out, but I can look at sales and I can see what it does for us. And, you know, so we've, we've had a lot of focus on that, Chris, in terms of trying to find really, really popular flower genetics for customers and, and to, to maintain the proper production levels to service that. Um, and so we've been really, really successful with uh, our flower and, and our pre-rolls that come from that. All of our pre-rolls are pure brown flour. So we're always, you know, trying to produce a, a great experience when, when smoking the flour. Um, but every product we make is goes down into not being beholden to anyone. So all of the formulations for edibles, for the vape, everything is done in-house. We're in no licensing deals. The other thing is, is, is the labs, right? So you have a, you got the internal supply chain of flour, then you can buy biomass from other third parties, but you have a, you have, uh, you have a, you, you, you know, we have a lab and the lab is, I think another place where we've really excelled and, and spent a tremendous amount of money on equipment. And obviously we're making really, really pure distillate, but on top of it, I think I'm probably most proud of, you know, is our terpene extraction. We, we extract terpenes both from a CO2 extraction machine and from a, steam stilled, uh, distilled uh, piece of equipment as well. But we have two different varieties of terpenes that we collect in-house on, on a daily basis. And then we use those cannabis-derived terpenes and we'll create uh, really spectacular uh, vape cartridges, Chris. And, and I think that's part of who we are at Happy Valley in terms of authenticity. You know, we're not trying to sell, for instance, botanical terpenes that are being infused into our vape carts. That's just not who we are. They're popular in the industry. It's not something we're going to do, right? We want to stay true to the plant. We're very, very committed to, 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 to trying to preserve as much authenticity as we can to the end product. So we like to use uh, in our bay products, you know, single source cultivar terpenes from, directly from the plants we grow in our building. Um, down to the ingredients in, in our edibles, you know, we, we temper our chocolate, Chris, instead of, instead of doing ready melt chocolate, which requires additional step in the process. We, we think that that's important to produce the best possible chocolate. So we've done things like that at every single product that we put at the market, but we don't have a, a, a one person has created all of this type of situation. It's been a collective team effort. We've attracted a lot of talent over the last couple of years uh, to our organization from the other side of the country. So we have good, solid industry experience. Um, and, you know, I think most recently, um, we recently launched, Chris, a, a, a line called Excel, uh, which is a, a nano product. So a lot of the industry has the buzzword of nano emulsification, nano products, you know, the fast acting, so on and so forth. And obviously we've been paying attention to that as well. And we ended up partnering with a different group than that's not doing nano emulsification. They have a different type of technology. And, and right now we're, we're really, we're really excited about this relationship that we have and the products we're making with this technology. What we believe we have is a, is a product producing more bioavailability and producing a Delta nine experience, Chris, and we can, we can talk about the differences of consuming edibles, you know, typically in an edible experience, as you know, will we'll metabolize, you know, over a period of time and it produces that hydroxy 11 molecule in that experience. And we can go down the rabbit hole on that, but we're learning what the differences are between the fast acting products and now the traditional edible products. And we're finding that our customers are gravitating to both because it's a slightly different experience. And we're, there's just so many more products that are going to come in the future, Chris, from this nanotechnology. So we're spending a lot of time on that, we're really trying to validate uh, how this technology's bioavailability is is working with with us. And there's some studies that our partner has going on to validate that. But the bottom line is, in Happy Valley, when it comes to all the products we make, we're doing it as a team. 
we have a lot of smart people. We get in a room. We, we tweak the formulations until we own it. So, and then yes. after we make those products, we want to put them in, you know, high quality packaging, Chris. I think that's another thing that we've done well um, is that we've put a lot of thought and creative energy into in to, to really high quality packaging. Oh, that's terrific. And, and look, I mean, we're hearing a lot here about quality, 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 great, you know, great team that's all bought in on the vision. But obviously this flows, you know, all this got to, has to stem from the top or flow from the top. Um, I would love to hear a little more about your personal relationship with cannabis and, and how that's impacted this, this laser focus on quality in the business. So with my background, you know, being out of the country and just, just, just Canada's not being a part of, you know, what I was doing for recreation um, consumption on any level. I'm a consumer that just had an opportunity to come and develop a relationship with the plant after, after more or less just returning to the plant. And so I think one of the things that I think that has been helpful for us at Happy Valley is that in our product decision-making meetings, here at the top of the organization is me, who's an actual consumer of all our products, providing feedback. We're not sitting around a boardroom with a bunch of individuals looking at spreadsheets and numbers, making decisions on products. We're make, I'm making decisions on products with all the team members and we're discussing each of us sharing our, our, our thoughts and feedbacks and experiences with these products we're making before we even remotely think about bringing them to the market. And I think it's really helped us. I have, you know, I'm also, you know, it's also really exciting when you when you find out about what the cannabis industry is producing and the number of products we can produce. It's kind of overwhelming, Chris. I remember when I first arrived in Colorado in 2015, I, I just I didn't even know I, I didn't even know what any of these products were. I mean, concentrates, right? I mean, it's just there's 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 50 subcategories under just that alone, right? So it's just amazing to just how many different consumption methods that are out there, how many different experiences we can create for an individual. Um, and I have participated and consumed all of the different products that we make and have been able to share my feedback as, as a first time consumer, you know, and then we have all the other individuals in the rooms that are longtime consumers of all, all these products, whether it dates back to the individuals who've been in the industry in Colorado since 2012 that are now in our organization. So I think that's led to really good decisions about what we bring to market at what time and, and then how we describe that product to the consumer based on what our experiences were while we were creating. I think we've done a, a better job of that than others. I think that's terrific. So let's let's look, you know, looking ahead a little bit to the future here. Um, you know, we we mentioned earlier we talked about the fact that you'd originally planned to start in Pennsylvania. Um, at one point, we we were actually involved in a joint venture uh, to try and uh, expand into Ohio. That uh, unfortunately that that didn't work out. Right, the joys of uh, licensing and appeals processes. Um, we don't need to we don't need to retread that ground here. Um, but you know, but now that you are successful in Massachusetts and you've really been able to hone this model, do you still have plans to expand into? other states in the future um, looking to become an MSO um, or are you, you know, looking to, you know, go deeper in, in Massachusetts or both? So right now, the primary focus is to complete our infrastructure in Massachusetts. We have a, a, a second cultivation and product manufacturing facility uh, that we own in Newburyport, Mass. And we have a provisional license for that facility there. When that's, a, you know, that's going to be a hundred thousand square foot building. So the, we're working on uh, bringing that uh, build out uh, to fruition next year. Um, and th that building is built to cross state lines, Chris, you know, it, when that day does arrive for our industry. Um, but it also completes what we need in order to, to achieve our goals in, in Massachusetts, which is to be you know, one of the, the top brand in Massachusetts. That's our goal, to be the top brand in Massachusetts. And in order to do that, we need more capacity. Um, so the last piece of the puzzle for us, uh, in Massachusetts is to get Newburyport up and running. And then secondly, we have a, our third retail location, our final allowed licensed retail location. Um, we would need to get that online. It's stuck in a zoning, one of those zoning appeals I talked to you about. We've been delayed for more than a year now. We have a, a second location approved in the city of Boston, Chris, in Brighton. I don't even know if you're, are you aware of that location? 
Uh, I don't think I am. I think last we talked about it, you were looking at your second location still down by the, uh, the, the TD Garden Center. Yeah, no, we ended up uh, finding a location in Brighton, which is, you know, on the other side of the city from where we're located in East Boston. Sure. And we yep. got it approved. Yeah, got it approved right at Cleveland Circle. Um, it's a former Marianne's bar that was a Boston College dive bar, and and the community didn't want the bar. And they, they, it was one of the few times in our, my career that I've ever had a community group want us, as opposed to <laughs> the previous years. So that, that, was, nice. that, was, that was quite helpful. <laughs> So uh, that 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 uh, that college bar had had it run its course, I guess, with the community. So it was it was nice to be supported by that community group, which you know in Boston is very difficult. Uh, so it was great to have that support. Unfortunately, we, our our approval got appealed, but that completes our, our retail experience mass. And and we honestly, I think that that location might end up being the most successful per square foot store we have. Um, so we're right now that. That is that is the primary focus, Chris. We have two major assets that we need to bring online in mass. We're focusing in on that. We do believe that we're reaching resolution on on that appeal with the the group that that appealed us. So we're working through that. Um, and then, like I said, we're working on bringing you know that building in Newburyport online. That building in Newburyport will will expand our our product manufacturing. It'll also help us scale it. Get in. We can also have more space to do the uh, the more automated CPG packaging that that are that we need to help our margins. And then on top of it, you know, it's always been our desire to to get into breeding, right? Happy Valley branded flower, you know, control completely control your destiny as it relates to your flower, and, and that's and that's like that's a, that's what we'll be doing out of that building as well. But I will say we are absolutely paying attention to New York. We've been tracking the cultivation and product manufacturing licensing. When those applications will come out, I believe they've been delayed another four or five months now. So we are looking at New York. Um, We haven't made any commitments to absolutely go there, but we're certainly paying close attention to it. And and we're going to make a decision on that very quickly once, once we understand when those applications would be due. So we are following that. Obviously, I have aspirations to to get into Ohio. Um, I think it'll be a great market in Ohio, especially you know when adult use arrives in that market. I think it I think it will arrive in that market. I don't know when, um, but so we do have you know I it is a good market we'd like to be in. Um, Pennsylvania is another one, of course. If they were to have adult use, both of those markets are. It would be for you know if they have adult use come come to fruition, and I think we're you know I'm going to say something completely unoriginal. We you know, we'd obviously like to be in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like I hear that from there. It's like Florida is like the yeah, holy grail so it's, for it's, like every it's probably the most unoriginal thing I ever said in the Kansas industry. I'd like to be in Florida. Uh, yeah. So uh, are we doing anything about it? No. But I mean, you know, because but at the end of the day, in terms of where we'd like to be in the future, absolutely, we'd like to have an opportunity to be in Florida. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's before, you know, before we wrap up here, I want to hit on sort of one other topic, which is capital raising. Um, And I know this is, you know, this is a challenge for everybody in the cannabis industry. Um, And you've definitely had, you know, I think you've had your share of of tense moments or, or challenges in, in raising capital to, you know, to help you get to where you're at today. Um, so, you know, what kind of lessons have you learned about raising capital in the cannabis industry and, and navigating the cannabis capital markets? Well, the, f- the first thing that I can, sh- can state is that it's hard to believe that raising capital while Jeff Sessions was trying to put people in jail potentially was an easier time to raise capital than today. <laughs> But yeah, it it's amazing, huh? Yeah, but it absolutely was. Um, and I, I know for a fact that the what I had to sell in 2016 in terms of a, an idea and a concept on paper, trying to sell that today, I, I don't think I w- we would be successful, right? Um, I think it's very hard right now to, to raise money as a cannabis startup. But what I have learned is, uh, in, in our particular case, one of the reasons I do believe we were we were successful. We've raised $60 million. We had downside protection. So Eddie and I had a background in real estate. Um, we, we own our real estate outright in, in, in all of our locations. You know, we raised 50, $60 million. We put 50 million of it into hard assets. And that's always what we represented to our investors that were coming into our deal. If this, 
if this cannabis startup went to hell in a handbasket and didn't work out at all, did they have some downside protection? Well, they did in our in our investment scenario because we those those real estate assets and the hard assets that we invested in, it at some point they were going to be they, they weren't going to go to zero. I mean, they were going to be worth something. So we had good downside protection. And I think it's very important if you're going to try and sell a cannabis deal that you got. Besides the upside you're selling, you better have some downside protection to offset all the risk that comes with our industry. And I think that's one of the things that, as I look at raising capital in the future, again, it's one of the things that I'm I'm always going to be cognizant of um, because I think it was very helpful for us to have that downside protection. It's helpful for us today as we look at trying to do more with our capital raising. Obviously, I, I had thoughts that the current administration was going to provide some federal relief for us. Uh, it's very hard to grow organically when the basically the government's taxing us and taking all of our available cash from us, Chris. And then we have no ability to really have a functioning capital markets to go to, to, to raise money easily. So it's, it's the number one problem in the industry. You know, we can't grow organically. Debt is hard to get at good terms. As you know, equity is very hard right now. Going public is only available to us on the Canadian stock exchange. It's just, it's very difficult right now. We, at some point, you know, we're all going to get some relief on a federal level in one shape or way, shape or form. We all believe that just hasn't happened yet. Now, now that timeline of when it will happen, I, you know, I wish you had, I wish you'd share that crystal ball with me. (laughs) I wish I had it. Uh, I mean, look, we're all, we're all, we're all holding out a lot of hope here that we get uh, safe banking in some form done before the end of this congressional session. And I'm, I'm very cautiously optimistic. It does feel like for the first time in two years that those stars are aligning and the right people are having the right conversations. Um, and I think the entire industry is, is banking on it. But you know, even that, look, that's not going to be the panacea, right? Like it's going to help a lot, um, but it doesn't fix 280E. And it doesn't fix the free cash flow issue, um, right? So there's still going to be a lot of work to get uh, to get done on the federal level. But I think that's still. I mean, I think everybody right now would sign up for that over what we've got right uh, we've got today, given given just how you know how much of a bloodbath these markets have been for the past. I mean, really, the past year or so, it's it's just been brutal. Um, but let's. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, the other thing is is obviously as you uh, the MS. Uh, uh, all the public companies, all the MSOs that are publicly traded, you know, obviously their valuations have just you know plummeted this year in terms of how the market is valuing them, and that carries over to all of us that are privately held. Absolutely, everything. Yeah, that's uh, there's huge downstream impacts on uh, 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 from from the public companies. I mean, they kind of drive you know for better or worse, right? They kind of drive the overall cannabis economy, you know, part in part because of valuations, as you mentioned, right? The I think you know private private investors are looking at the public companies to set valuations uh, because those are the ones that are publicly available. Um, but also just in terms of, you know, money streaming into the industry, money trickling into the industry, M&A activity, investment activity, right? So much of that is driven by the health of the publicly traded companies for better or worse. Um, and right now, I mean, it's, it's never been this bad before. No, I mean, listen, I mean, I, I'm hearing multiples as low as two and four on EBITDA, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so that that's, if you're out raising money and you're not an, an MSO or you're not publicly traded and you have to, you have to combat that when you're raising money privately for yourself. And, and I, I, I deal with it every week right now, you know, just in terms of how, well, what are you worth? What is happy value worth? You know, and it, it's, it, it's really, I tell everyone the same thing. It's not what we're worth today. Okay, it's what are we going to be worth when we have a functioning capital market? Because all the transactions so far in the industry have not been for cash. It's typically been a very large portion of stock and paper given with a little bit of cash, right? That's been the majority of what you've seen. It's certainly on the bigger transactions. So it's really about, you know, everyone right now invested in cannabis and especially, you know, our investors at Happy Valley, you know, they're long right now. You know, we don't have a, a, a liquidity event right on the horizon. You know, the future, you know, my goal at Happy Valley is to, you know, our, our goal at Happy Valley is to build one of the leading cannabis brands in the industry. And, you know, we, we are committed to our investors. We're committed to our employees and we're com- committed to our customers. 
Um, and one day, you know, when we're at this place where we have functioning capital markets, we'll end up figuring out how we're going to provide that liquidity to our to our investors. Is it going to be, you know, becoming part of uh, an acquisition of someone else in and outside of the cannabis industry? Is it going to be private equity, or is it going to be looking at going public? And those are all the things that we will that we discuss internally. But right now, they're just not on the horizon. So we're looking at building continue to build the brand equity till we can get to a point where we can maximize an exit and however that might look. Oh, that's, that's terrific. And you know what you actually, you just answered my, my last question, which is what is your end game? So I think that's probably a really good place for us to, uh, to wrap this up, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's awesome to talk with you. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, we got to do this more regularly, not necessarily for a recorded audience, but just, uh, just to chat. I always enjoy chatting with you, man. And I'm very, I'm very proud of the success that you've achieved so far and what you've been and how far you've been able to come since we first started this journey together back in 2015. Um, so it's been, it's been a real pleasure and I, and I, and I thank you for, uh, thank you for being here today. Hey, Chris, thank you. It's great to hear your voice and to connect today. And, and listen, you played a part in the success of Happy Valley. Those and individuals like yourselves that were part of this vision from the beginning and the advice and counsel. And, and you know, we scanned our knees together, so to speak, at times, right? Spilled some <laughs> That's blood. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, we've learned a lot, you know, collectively as, as an industry, you know. And I and listen, you as, an, as a longtime advocate and those pioneers like you, Chris, you know, I'm not having this conversation right now if it wasn't for the act, the, the the actions you guys took 15, 20 years before we even had an opportunity to have regulated markets. So I thank you for what you did and, and those like you. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be in this industry. I'm not going anywhere. Um, you know, I can't even see the end of, the, of where Happy Valley will end up yet. So I'm excited to keep building the company, looking forward to delivering a great return for our investors in the future and, and continue to build on what we've achieved so far. And I, Thank you for the opportunity to speak about Happy Valley today. Absolutely. Thanks again for being here, Mike, and congrats again on the success. Special thanks again to Michael Reardon, founder and CEO of Happy Valley Ventures. If you're interested in learning more about Happy Valley, you can visit them at www.happyvalley.org. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback, guest ideas, and any notes that you have for us on the, on the episodes or what you want to hear in the future episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. And thanks for listening. That's one take, Shay. One take. <laughs>